All right, you guys can uh, you guys can have a seat. The youth are going to be hanging out in here with us this Sunday as it is Communion Sunday. So we've got the junior high and senior high in here with us. We're always glad to have you guys. Um, hey, like I said, just please be patient with us. We're still getting used to this new texting company. In fact, we may switch other companies. We're not quite sure these guys are delivering on what we hoped that they would. So all that to say, make sure that we also, we've been trying to back up like our prayer stuff and things like that by sending it out via email. So if we don't also have your email, because we do, we blast out stuff all week via email. Make sure if you're like, I am not hearing from the church, you know, we love you. We do want to communicate with you. So make sure you're, um, send us like, hey, I'm not getting texts or hey, I'm not getting the emails, but we are working hard on keeping you guys up to date. All right, now you guys can go ahead and stand, right? We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are uh, in this section as we are watching the gospel go out in Thessalonica, and we're seeing how God is using it to radically impact the city, the country, etc. So let's start here. We'll read together as we honor God's word. Again, I'll read the odd, and then we'll read the even uh, or highlighted verses together, which by this time you guys should have memorized. I think it's our third week reading this passage. You're like, I think I know this passage, Caleb. One more time. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You guys can have a seat. So I think we're going to wrap up this section. I think this week is, uh, we've been on our third uh, Sunday talking about this particular aspect of what's going on in Thessalonica. Turning from idols to God. And each week, we've kind of looked at the significance of that because we say it and we're like, yeah, okay, they turn from idols to Jesus. But I think as we're looking at the culture and understanding just how hard that would be, it helps us as we're praying for our nation and our families, just thinking about how radical that must have been. And then asking the question, like, what about the gospel helps these people turn from, you know, this entrenched way of thinking and living. And then how do we communicate the gospel the same way? Years ago, I took my first trip. Uh, I went with a team of pastors and we were going to Korea. And before we went to Korea, we stopped uh, in China. And then part of that um, was to go visit what would be the underground church. And having been to a few places that the gospel, like you kind of have to be little, and like in an undercover mode. Like I remember going in with this group of pastors as we were getting our visas and kind of thinking through like, because everything is watched, everything is paying attention. Uh, like we had some digital material 
wheels of like, how do we get the Bible in the hands of some of these people? But knowing that we were very much going to be on the radar. And so flying into a country where, you know, being a Christian and being a pastor, you know, you're like, uh, this could get awkward really, really fast. And uh, I remember we were on our way to go visit what would be a team of underground pastors. And we had come from one kind of like, um, you know, where, where it's like, hey, we're going to kind of roll out the red carpet, give you kind of the, you know, the, the overview. But like secretly, we're like, okay, we're trying to meet with these pastors over here. And when you're there, as Christians, you're going to be tailed. You're going to be um, kind of watched from the moment you land and get in to everything that you basically do. And as we were on our bus with the team of pastors and we could see um, the tail that we had that as we were considering like, okay, if we go meet with this group of pastors right now that are serving in the underground church, we could totally expose them. And then we were getting pulled over and we're like, oh no. And then starts that conversation in the bus. You know, to what extent, like looking at each other, knowing if we get arrested right now, because we did have like some materials and gospel things and resources that we wanted to, to give out. Um, and you're, you're having that like that moment of what happens when my faith, you know, in terms of I'm here as a Christian, as a pastor, how are we going to deal with the legal consequences, implications if we're faced with a who are you and what are you doing here? You know, in those moments, like we talk about them, you know, um, from books and different countries and cultures, but to actually be sitting in that, in, in that section as we were praying, they actually ended up leaving us alone. We ended up not being able to go minister with those pastors because we would have put them at risk and we had to find another way to do that. But it was one of those, it was one of those moments where it became real. And I, I, I remember because like Kim, this was one of the things that she like with YWAM and, you know, being overseas, like when, um, when she was sharing her heart for missions, how many of you guys know who Brother Andrew was? So Brother Andrew, well-known, famous believer in the communist areas of like Yugoslavia, Romania, et cetera. And so when communism was the dominant culture out there, being a Christian and communicating the gospel was a punishable offense, let alone getting Bibles to people. And so he was a Bible smuggler. And he was someone who would smuggle Bibles in. And I remember this quote because it made me think about it. It was like, that was part of what I was thinking in the bus is like, I'm having a brother Andrew moment. I remember praying something like this. I remember as Kim was telling me the story, like, do you got to hear about brother Andrew? I think it was one of the first missionary books. Like, huh, read this God smuggler book. Little did we know. And brother Andrew says, and so for the first of many times, I said the prayer of God smuggler. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture that I want to take to your children across this border. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And it's interesting. I've been in places where I think I have found myself praying the exact same thing. You know, whether in Muslim context, whether like our church, we helped do some church plants in Russia. We had teams over there being in Europe. Like these are real moments sometimes as Christians where we are seeking to like, I'm going to honor God. I want to, I want to get the gospel out, but we're also coming in like to conflict with like the state and a state that is adversarial to Christianity. It feels weird if you're in the West and you've never like, you've never been in that situation, but throughout history, the gospel Christianity has kind of been a disruptor when it comes to this idea of like, who is king? 
uniquely Christianity seems to, to threaten, you know, that whole um, secular lifestyle, Caesar, etc. And so as we're trying to wrap our minds around like what it was like in Thessalonica, and, and, and I, and I want to help us understand today kind of this, this third area of turning from idols. And so the idea isn't necessarily the state of Christianity. I want to talk about the Christianity and the state. Christ, when Christ and Caesar collide. So as we have walked through um, these different aspects, we talked about how in Greco-Roman aspects of religion and worship, the home, you know, was probably the closest. I mean, every meal, every aspect of life was kind of governed by the little figurines and religious rites and things that you do. That was like a big part of your idea, your idea of religion. But as we zoom out and we think about the gods over the city, you know, part of your job, part of your career would be connected to some type of guild. You know, you would, you know, offer and connect, uh, you know, worship and sacrifices, and you would all be a part of like honoring the God that was over your particular skill set. But all of these things actually worked in alignment with the state. Like as we think about the world in which Jesus was born into, we think about the Roman world and the power of whom? Caesar. And we realize that at this time, the concept of the worship of Caesar, the worship of the emperor and the empire was a significant part of everyday life. Now, you and I think of religion as like, okay, you've got to have like a whole worldview where you believe all these things. But for many of them, it was just like, this is a matter of loyalty. We're a part of the Pax Romana. This is how we have the peace of Rome. Everybody follow the rules and everything will go fine. But the idea that all of these support the empire. So Thessalonica had a unique status as a city. It was a capital city in that region, largest in population, partly because of its significance in terms of trade routes and all the rest of that kind of stuff. As a capital city, it was allowed a certain amount of freedom. It didn't have Roman guards and stuff set um, there uh, uh, amongst the area. It trusted, you know, that the people there were all in support of the empire. And so they had, you know, their own city council and their own certain rulers and magistrates like, hey, we we are giving you a certain amount of freedom because what you are doing is all in alignment with the empire. But don't rock the boat, right? Like if you start, you know, we start seeing some resistance, we start seeing some of those changes, you're going to lose that status there in the city. And so for, uh, for Thessalonica, it was a big deal to have this Roman protection, to have this Roman uh, freedom. And so anything that threatened that, well, instantly that created some problems, which is why when we notice now there in Thessalonica, they were early adopters of the idea of the worship you know, of Caesar. They started moving their temples to prioritize this. They see, like, we totally worship Caesar. Like, here's the temple to Rome. And even in the coinage, you would have moving on from Julius Caesar to Augustus, they would refer to Caesar as God or son of God, right? So think about that in the back of your head in terms of how people would think about. And when we think about this idea of God, it's like, okay, you are God's servant. Like, all these things are subject to you. And so all of their different, you know, household gods and then gods of the city are kind of subject, you know, under the role of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Now, when we look at what happened when Paul and them rolled in, notice now, pay attention to why after three weeks of preaching and teaching and talking about Jesus, they wanted to kick him out of the city. 
It says in verse 4 of Acts 17, some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up the bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, started a riot in the city, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house and they are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that what? There is another king, one called Jesus. You see, as we begin to think about the gospel, yes, you know, we think about the idea of my sins are forgiven. There's a very personal nature because obviously we live in a very individualistic Western culture. But when you begin to think about what this message declares, the king has been born. Like, do you remember when we go back to our Christmas story, Herod, when the, you know, when the, when here comes the wise men and then there's like, where is the what? Where is the king? And it's like, what do you mean king? Like the idea of who Jesus was as king, as Lord, has disrupted from the very beginning those who would try to hold on to this idea of, no, I'm in power. Like the declaration that Jesus, as much as he is our individual savior, he is also Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. No other king, no other sovereign, like this is something that is radical when it comes to now the Roman Empire. So when we start thinking of Paul, like in their minds, the anarchist, imagine communicating that as much as Caesar is on the throne, let me tell you who's over Caesar. Let me tell you when you are faced with making a decision to honor Caesar or honor Jesus, you honor Jesus. Like this message, and then, you, then you'd have to like defend that. Well, why? Well, let me tell you who Jesus is as Messiah, God walking amongst us. Here's the miracles. Here's the prophecies. He really is God. And that was part of the message that was being communicated. Three weeks later, he gets thrown out the city, but this is part of the accusation. He is disrupting the Roman order. He is talking about another king higher than Caesar, i.e. treason. Are you tracking with me now? So when we talk about this idea of Christianity, and this is kind of our last in this series of turning from idols, now we're dealing with the idolatry of the state, the significance of like, okay, Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. You know, we don't, like I say, necessarily feel like we live in this tension always, but you might surprise yourself how this tension actually exists still in your life and even in the world around us. So let me tell you how this started to come to a head within the empire. Because Caesar was to be Lord, you were allowed to worship your gods. It was a very multicultural kingdom, if you will. There were many different gods, as you've seen us talk about being worshipped. That's fine. You can have this God and that God. Bring your Jesus with you, no problem. As long as what? As long as Caesar is Lord. So one of the ways that they would be able to identify this is they would have either once a year in terms of their festivals, you would be required, you know, to come out as the citizenry and you would come out with everybody lined up and you would have the magistrates and the people there and you would come, take your pinch of incense in line, Caesar is Lord, drop it on the fire. And if you had done, followed the, the, the regular, you know, okay, you did it, good job, here's your certificate, we'll see you next year. 
They would also have these things at the regular um, areas of marketplace. You might go for, for water and like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm getting my, you know, local benefits. Caesar's Lord, here you go, no problem. But connected with some of the benefits of Rome was the acknowledgement that I would have to, right, in an offering, in a religious aspect, I'm going to put the, the pinch of incense on the fire, and I just need to declare Caesar is Lord, and then I can move on. Now, you can imagine for a believer, as you're hearing about Jesus' death and resurrection and what he has done for you, and this idea that Jesus alone is Lord, what happens the next time you're in that line? What happens the next time that you're standing there and it's your turn to just like, okay, once a year, let's walk up and like, like, do I, do I just kind of like mumble through it? Do I get out of line? Do I just follow through and be like, Caesar is Lord, but really it's Jesus. Like, let me just cross my fingers behind my back. You can imagine how quickly this idea of like my faith and Caesar beginning to come in conflict. Because not only in terms of like Rome and the empire, but all the favor in the city, all of the benefits and stuff connected with government, et cetera, like this would be a natural part, and it was public. So with you opting out, it's not just a private thing where nobody knows what I'm doing in my home. No, no it's not Caesar is Lord. But now I'm faced with standing out there, and I'm risking losing my job, maybe losing my my, my, my life, being labeled some type of anarchist, anti-government. I mean, just go down the list. This was a public test of loyalty. And so it was ingrained in all of these different aspects of Greco-Roman life throughout the Greco-Roman empire. And it ensured the favor of the empire and all these different tributaries. This was kind of the law of the land. And like I said, opting out would put you as an atheist and an anarchist. You are a disbeliever in God and you are disloyal to the country, disloyal to the kingdom. Ergo, you put yourself in significant jeopardy. Most of us as believers have never really found ourselves with that type of tug of war. At least we don't really think about it in those terms. So giving you a little bit of context, under the emperor domination, this was compulsory for every Roman citizen. The burning of a pinch of incense was rewarded by a certificate which had to be renewed annually. Failure to produce a certificate meant being branded as Christian, and this opened the way if magistrates so decided for the death penalty on the ground of treason. You see, as I mentioned, Rome didn't have a problem with worshiping Jesus. They had a problem with worshiping Jesus only. And in our multicultural, secular society, that's kind of where the dividing line starts to come in, right? Like, I'm fine with you wearing a cross and talking about Jesus, but the moment you start to make Jesus the number one thing, the defining thing, the thing that's overarching, you know, in terms of community, society, it's Jesus alone. Now you're getting intolerant. So you see, that's not so much of a new thing. Rome, have all your other gods, but the moment you start putting Jesus above Caesar, and you're opting out of this basic test of loyalty, Caesar is Lord, now we have a problem. For the Christian, this has been central to the teaching of the gospel. This is central to our understanding of who Jesus is. He is not just a man 
and a mere teacher. Messiah means what? Anointed one. The Christ isn't his last name. It is the stamp of the promise that we look at as we look at all the prophecies that are fulfilled in terms of what are we looking for? The one who would come, the king. The one whom one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. If we fast forward to Revelation chapter five, remember you come across an angel, most people who would come across an angel in the, in the Bible, what? <laughs> Right? You fall down like dead. And when we think about like how overwhelming it would be as a human being to come in contact with like some heavenly being, then when we get a picture of heaven, what is heaven doing? Bowing down before the throne. Worthy is. Like heaven bows and acknowledges the sovereignty of Jesus. How much more us here on earth. So when we look at the teaching of Jesus and understanding Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, those are more than just words. Lord implies a certain sovereignty that places him higher than those other things that we might hold as Lord, the state, my own ideas, my own heart. Like you just kind of go down the list. What really is Lord in my life? What gets the final say? Jesus said it this way. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. That is a pretty bold line. And one that many of the early Christians really had to face. Right? There was no like secret service Christianity. You were constantly like this stuff was coming to the surface in terms of like my public faith in Jesus. And as we begin to look at kind of how the early church grew, what had happened here in the book of Acts, you would be confronted with that reality of is Jesus Lord? Am I willing to acknowledge that and all the consequences that come with it? But here's Jesus telling me, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. And then the opposite, which we also see when we look back, you know, in church history and we see that the torture and the threat and all of the other things would cause people in that moment sometimes to be like, Caesar is Lord. And they would be willing to turn away. Book of Hebrews. I mean, there's a number of different letters that are written to Christians who are facing that kind of pressure. Hold fast. You know, looking at this reality, that, I mean... That gives you a whole different appreciation for what these guys were going through as Christians. How many of you guys know this song? I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I love that song. I was in India, and for the first time, I found out that this song was written by an Indian man, you know, who had converted to Christianity out of one of these tribes, a missionary who had come out of the, the Welsh revival, had traveled to India, the gospel goes out, and this man and his family get saved. And there in one of these kind of outskirt tribes, these guys begin communicating the message of the gospel. And guess what? People get saved. But as usual, when the gospel goes out, Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. So if you're the chief, if you're the person who's like being now threatened with losing a power and influence, it's like now it's this Jesus. He's like, hold on. So he brought the guy out and his family in front of the tribe. And he said, you can choose to deny this Jesus or we're going to kill your family. 
And so there, as he's standing there with his wife and his two children, as the guy asks him this question, he says, I have decided to follow Jesus. At that command, the chief has him pull back the bow and arrows, and the two kids end up paying the ultimate price for that answer. He looks at the man and his wife and says, I'll give you another chance. Are you willing to walk away from this Jesus, deny this Jesus, and like, let's affirm the truth of where we left off. After that, he says, though none join me, still I will follow. His wife gets the next arrow, and she joins the two children there in front of the king in heaven. There he asks him one more time, will you now deny this Jesus? His final answer, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. We wept. I'm, we're in a service where the guy explains that song, and I'm like, I will never look at that song again, because then think about the impact of those words facing, like, the ultimate question, Jesus, not Caesar, but in the same context. And to hear for someone out in the other corner of the world to recognize that, no, there is no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, like, You see, as I mentioned before, Rome was fine as long as it's Jesus and the what? In the state. You can have your Jesus as long as you put him in the right place. But the moment it becomes Jesus versus the state, we have a problem. Now, throughout history, we have seen this pop up where the idea of like the state versus Jesus. Communism at its core kind of had this as a key tenet. When you look up Marx and Engels, um, some of their writings in the Communist Manifesto, look at some of what they had to say about this threat for them of Christianity and religion. There are besides eternal truths such as freedom and justice, et cetera, that are common to all states of society. But communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and morality. Instead of constituting them on a new basis, it therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. In other words, saying, hey, justice and these things are all equal. You don't need a Jesus. You don't need a religion. We don't need... Why? Because ultimately, if there's a God, that God is greater than the state. And it's like, nope, the state is your God. Fast forward, look at another one of their writings Stalin's five-year plan for atheism in his uh, essay into the militant godless. He says, not a single house of prayer shall remain in the territory of the USSR. And the very concept of God must be banished from the Soviet Union as a survival of the Middle Ages and an instrument for the oppression of the working masses. You see, we've seen that the state sometimes looks at religion and says that's the challenge, the rival throne. And the idea of like, hey, we need to eradicate, we need to draw a line here in the, stand, the, the, the sand. None of this. And what's interesting is then as you go through like the, 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 the areas where this ideology, right, becomes reality. And as I mentioned, like you look in the former Yugoslavia, Romania, these areas, that's where we used to live, uh, Hungary. And as communism rolled out, you saw the effects mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. One guy, Richard Wormbrand, who was a believer who ended up being imprisoned for sharing the gospel during that time. He has a number of things that he talks about being a Christian under communist rule and empire, having been imprisoned. He said, look, persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul winning Christian. 
Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such as are rarely seen in free lands. These people cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. It's interesting, kind of like we saw with the, the Joseph principle, right? What the enemy meant for evil, God uses for good. You know, where each one of these edicts, whether we get into Nero and Dominician and the Roman persecution or in other areas where the state, where the, the enemy is trying to say, okay, we're going to stamp out Christianity. What happens? You begin to see how that fire begins to refine and bring out, right? That real value, that essence of the gospel. He's got another quote. Got a couple more actually. Because again, not all of us are living in an area where we're going to face this, but I love this quote that he says to believers. Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end as the martyrs had. I mean, that's part of the challenge for us. We may not be faced with the exact same pressure, but that same calling to begin to think through what does obedience to Christ look like? What is my pinch of incense? Where is that place where I feel like I'm being challenged when it comes down to living out my faith where Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord? And that idea for Christians should be consistent no matter what part of the globe you're at. What does that radical obedience look like? I'll give you one other quote. He says, a man really believes not what he recites in his creed, but the only thing he is ready to die for. Again, I can say, hey, I'm a believer because I'm a part of this denomination. I've done this creed. I've done this thing, right? But then when the line actually gets drawn and I'm faced with that choice, be it public pressure, or maybe there's some private moment where I have to make a choice to live out my faith, that question of like, what am I actually willing to die for? Is that the kind of Christianity? Do I believe in Jesus to that extent? And that's a good question for us even as Western Christians, like, would I die for my faith? Because even if you're willing to say, yes, I would, the even more challenging side of that is, would I live for my faith? Now, getting back to this, we say, okay, but Pastor Caleb, where does this look in context? But remember, as we fast forward to the end of the book, we can look back and see how this was a reality. But as we fast forward to the end of the book, we know once again in the future, there's going to come a time where there's going to be a line in the sand where choosing to be a Christian is going to put you at odds with the powers that be. We talk about like the mark of the beast. Most of you guys know this. This comes out of the book of Revelation chapter 13. Let me just give you the verses that you're holding on to in your head that we're talking about. In verses 16 and 17, talking about the mark of the beast, it says it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now that comes out of the context, right, of these miracles and deceptions and things that are following. There's a whole idolatry that's set up and the mark of the beast is connected to the worship of the beast. But it becomes what? Becomes that dividing line in the sand, this public way of being able to show, are you, which side are you on? And then the implication that you won't be able to navigate any regular life. You're not going to the bank. You're not going to the store. You're not going to be able to work or buy or sell. Like if you're not willing to get the mark. And so we realize I can look back and see how this was a reality for early believers. And we can look forward and we can recognize that there's going to be a time in the future before Jesus comes back where once again, people are going to be faced with the decision, Jesus 
or the stay. And the crazy thing is, is we begin to look at this and we ask ourselves, what is the pinch of incense today? We talked about the idols of the home. We've talked about the idols in the city. But I think about those areas where I'm being challenged in terms of Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Where are the battle lines being drawn between Christ and compromise for you? I mean, it's a challenging question to think about. And I think it's an important question. And again, this is not me getting political. This isn't about not paying your taxes or you need to pick this political party or this anti-government idea. No, like Jesus talks about, hey, render unto Caesars what is what? Caesars, render unto the Lord. Like there is a, an aspect where we as Christians, Peter would talk about the, our role in even being submitted to government. But at the end of the day, when all of a sudden it's Jesus or Caesar, that's a different question. And as we think about like, the time that we're in, we're not at the mark of the beast moment yet. But if we look at the cheeses on the chessboard, if we look at the time, like the kinds of things that have been happening where the censorship, like I even got a message on YouTube this last week about our YouTube channel, you know, in terms of what things might be and might not be throttled, you know, where just even as a believer, right, how, how we communicate a biblical sexual ethic or Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Like it's going to become harder and harder to speak the truth of who Jesus is when it comes in contrast to like when I say the party line, I mean the Antichrist party line. Right, the anti-Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life party line. And we begin to think like, hey, I can see these things on the horizon. Because Jesus said, you're not gonna know the day or the hour, but you're gonna know the season. And are we paying attention, right? Like there's social credit score things happening around the world where the kinds of things that you like and don't like and say and identify with, like if you say the wrong thing, this can start to have a, a personal you know, impact on you and your ability to work. Some of you guys have felt like you've been put in positions where you're like, am I choosing my job and my faith? Am I looking at a friendship and my faith? Now, I'm not calling us as Christians to be like, you know, we just need to like start tearing everybody down and light it on fire kind of a thing. But the reality is, what does it look like when you stand to say, what am I, what am I willing to let it cost me to say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm actually going to hold God's word over the culture. I'm going to hold God's word over this job promotion. I'm going to hold God's word over this particular relationship. Because guys, it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're moving back to that Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Now again, they would be like, just, just, right? Like, can I just, just offer the pinch of incense and go to work? Just offer the pinch of incense and like we can figure it out next year. Like there were lots, you can imagine the turmoil and the conversation and frustration for each family as they're facing, what are we gonna do? What is that gonna look like? Jesus told his disciples about this. He said, I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Jesus told his disciples before all this really hit the fan. This was there towards that last supper. But notice what he's telling them. I've told you this so you will not fall what? Away. There are a lot of believers who have this idea of Christianity. They call it lucky rabbits for Christianity, right? Except it wasn't really lucky for the rabbit, you know? Like there's just this idea. You guys all just got really sad. 
Like there's this idea that if I'm a Christian, you know, then everything's supposed to get better. My bank account, my job, my marriage, my family, like, like, like it's all supposed to get really good. And it must not be God's will because it's not going very fast or very easy. And it's like, I think you're missing some of Jesus's other promises. They will persecute you. They will hate you for my name's sake. There's going to come a time where people will want to kill you for my name. Guys, like you don't have to look far in the realm of what's going on in the world to see that choosing to be a believer, to like draw the line and say, I believe these things about Jesus and his word will put you not only at odds, but could put you like with some people in like some serious head-to-head consequences. What if our faith in Jesus was tested? Has Jesus is Lord ever cost you anything? And I mean that in a good way. Because guys, this time is coming. And that question of are we ready to handle the question, you know, if it was my job, if it was some particular area like where I'm being called to say, just offer the pinch of incense. And we can get into a lot of different ways that we think. And guys, we do. We need to be thinking this out. You know, I love, that's why we've been on Thursday nights and putting all, all this apologetic content, all the arguments over pronouns and biblical sexuality. And all that. We need to think through, like Paul would say, I become all things to all men that I might win some to Christ. Great. How am I, how am I walking in love to win some to Christ? But how am I also making a decision to say, I, what if I don't believe in that with my job? And am I willing, you know, to like say, I can't sign that. I can't do that. You know, and if we look back at the last couple of years, you can go like, and that's true. Some of that stuff has been going on. I didn't think about it. But are we really thinking about it in light of our faith? Are we having those conversations? Are we praying about it? Are we as a church edifying, building each other up, saying, okay, let's see what God's word says about this? Because the time is coming where your faith will be tested. It'll be refined by fire and there will be consequences. It's gonna get worse, not better before Jesus comes back. But guess what? Jesus is coming back. Now, we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, this is part of why Paul was saying this. He said, for this reason, I couldn't stand it any longer. I sent out to find about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might be in vain. See, Paul was afraid of the same thing. I communicated the gospel. We talked about it, man, you guys got saved, but there was all this persecution, all this challenge. And my fear is that when it all started to fall apart, you guys are gonna be like, I'm done with this Jesus thing. That's why he sent this letter from Timothy and he wanted to encourage them to hold fast. So how did Christians tend to handle this line in the sand? I'll give you three different ways that kind of looking from what we have of the early writings, this is kind of how Christians would typically have to deal with this question of it's just a pinch of incense. So you would have the radicals, you would have the actors, and you would have the compromisers. These are my words, okay? As you look at the three different responses, they become quite self-evident. So that idea of just offering a pinch of incense to Caesar, but it's not so much the pinch of incense, it's what? It's the declaration with my words, Caesar is Lord. Like the moment I'm doing that, I'm saying something other than Jesus is Lord. So the three different ways that people would tend to respond, one was the radicals, right? No compromise, I cannot say that. To the, to the consequences of prison or death, whatever that's gonna look like, I cannot, like, excuse me from the line. Nope, I'm not going to do that. You have your radicals. Then you would have what I call your actors. 
I told you that you had to show a piece of paper that showed compliance. Like in other words, if you offered the pinch of incense, they gave you a paper of authenticity that said, you are a good citizen, you passed your loyalty test, here's your paper. Well, other people a little more affluent, they're like, I could just buy the paper, right? And so in one sense, they're like, hey, I'm playing the game, you know, I'm, I'm doing what it takes to get the paper, but I'm not gonna, I don't believe Caesar is Lord. I'm not gonna say Caesar is Lord, but I'm kind of I'm kind of working the game here, right? And and I'm still a believer. I didn't do the whole Caesar's Lord, but I'm kind of still working in that system. And you can imagine that would be like kind of a real gray area trying to figure out like how does this actually work for a believer? And then you would have the compromisers. The ones who would actually change the faith to suit well we're supposed to love one another and I got to love the Romans. So, you know, if I just, you know, say Caesar is Lord, that's kind of loving so that I could, and you start to twist or change the gospel or say, I'm going to cut out this part or adjust this part so that it just kind of fits with this idea of like Caesar is Lord too. And you come to this reality where it actually puts you at odds with scripture. And you're like, Caleb, really? Yeah. Look at the letters in the book of Revelation and tell me that you don't see some of the same mentality going on as Jesus is writing back to the churches in the book of Revelation. And you see, like again, broadly in the church, it's not every single person in the church. It's interesting that in a church just like this, Jesus says, I see these different things going on. And he says, look, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Like the public test, there were those like Antipas who were like, no, Antipas was a radical. And it cost him his life. And there were others in the church who followed suit, who were willing to die because they were not willing to say Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus, Lord. Jesus says, man, I've seen these people in your church. But he also says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 talks about this idea of the refining of our faith. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that what? The genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire. That may be found to praise, honor, and glory by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The question is, like, when it gets hot, the truth kind of comes out. And the reality, there were some that began teaching, like, hey, there's some compromise here. You know, we can just kind of, like, add, and that was the whole idea with Balak and Balaam, like, hey, we can just build in. Let's get all these priestesses from here, and we'll get them to marry, you know, with the Israelites, and then we'll just kind of add, which ended up becoming a stumbling block for the rest of the nation of Israel permanently. But we see this whole idea of kind of synchronism. Like, hey, we're going to build in. We're going to adjust the teaching. We're going to sell this idea. We can do Jesus. And we can find that, like, we can just add in some of these other things. And we see here with the church in Pergamum, not only is Jesus not okay with that, but we're going to see it here in the next church as well. But one of the things that I want you to observe, because as we go through difficult times, and David was talking about this last night at the men's study, how often when we go through difficult things, we grow through difficult things. Our faith kind of becomes revealed. And as some were at that position of like, no, man, I will die for Jesus. Others were like, how about we just add in some of this other stuff? 
And they were accepting and acknowledging and creating that reality there within the church. In Thyatira, they actually began promoting teachers who began creating a false gospel, a way in which they're like, no, Jesus approves of this kind of stuff. This is what he says. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. It's interesting that these are the dividing lines that were happening even in the church. That rather than like a biblical sexual ethic to say, hey, here's God's standard. Like even there in the early church, like this was the argument. No, you know what? I had a vision. I think this is what God said to me. I think this is what God means. And that's her name probably wasn't Jezebel. He often uses names to, to ascribe character to this person. And we see that going back to the story of Ahab and Jezebel. And she brought in this idolatry with Ahab, etc. And that's what she was affirming. She's declaring, thus saith the Lord. And that's the scary thing, guys. You don't have to look far to find churches and teachers today who are willing to adjust. They kind of get out like the scissors, you know, or they get out the whiteout and we begin to change and adjust the word of God to fit our culture and society. So it's like, I can offer a pinch over here and still offer something to Jesus over there. I point this one out because this has been, you know, pretty bold. I think this is a pretty clear observation of what I mean by kind of twisting the word of God to fit your own cultural sexual ethic. And like in her particular book, as she left, you know, her husband and started her own, you know, life and, you know, pursuing it in her own, you know, lesbian, uh, you know, advocacy, like she's written as a Christian author using a number of verses to kind of describe, no, this is what God says is okay. And this is where I get like, now you get me as a pastor saying, hold on, <laughs> you know, you're twisting and changing the word of God to like fit your own cultural or sinful narrative. Like this is one thing she put in, uh, in her book, Untamed. Maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. Let it burn. You see what I mean though? But this goes back to the garden of did God really say? Guys, she is just the tip of the iceberg with the different ways that the enemy does want to get you to think, is it what God said or is it what I think? You know how many of us are like, maybe God didn't really mean. And there's that faith. Am I going to choose to believe what God's word says? Am I going to believe that even though it flies in the face of culture and some of these challenges that it's like, man, how do I understand that? What does that mean, et cetera? But it's like, okay, I'm going to hold God's word as the final authority, not culture, not my head, not my heart, not philosophy, et cetera. But I'm going to believe what God's word said versus like, well, what if it just means this? What if what he really meant was and you can go down the list. You can get on YouTube and you can find a plethora. like I said, the tip of the iceberg. But notice that oftentimes it's always about excusing sin to try to make something where it's like, well, God's really holding something back from you. What you really need, there's some secret knowledge or special knowledge. And it becomes really challenging. But guys, as much as you could look at her in that... The question is, I should be asking myself, is there anything that I'm excusing where I've just kind of like, well, God really doesn't, right? Like we begin to look at greed. I begin to look at other areas with my taxes. I begin to look at other areas with my boss and my time card. Like, is there any other area where I'm like, yeah, well, God's kind of like, you see what I mean? 
you're like, it's just a pinch of incense. You see, the Bible tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will what? Depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I'm not going to get into an argument with you, once saved, always saved, that kind of stuff. What I am going to say is there's a tension and a fear that we have in Scripture. Now, whether some people, you're like, maybe they were never believers. My point is, there are going to be people who are going to walk away from what they said, well, once I believed, once I was a Christian, and now I'm not because I'm following some other, it says, doctrines. As we get towards the end of the book, there's an apostasy. That word means a falling away. Now, again, whether these people are falling away from the faith, you could argue whether they really had faith. I get all of that. But the point is, there are going to be people that are deceived, walking away to doctrines of demons, we pray that it would be none of us, that we wouldn't be deceived, that we wouldn't be twisting, that we wouldn't be changing the word of God because that's what Paul keeps saying. I don't want you to walk away as it gets harder and harder and harder to be a Christian. So when you look at the list, compromisers, actors, let me just zero in on the radicals for a moment because we need some good news here with this story. As it said here about Antipas, right? We're like, man, Antipas was a radical. There's some radicals in this room. I know some, you know, and you're looking at this like people that have already made that decision. No turning back, cross before me, the world behind me. This is an interesting example of a guy we know a little bit about who was a radical. We don't know a lot about Antipas, but we know something about a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was an apostle, a disciple of John there in Smyrna, right in the same region that it's talking about. And Polycarp, as an old Christian, was faced with the, the same question, the same challenge. You know, now late in his 80s, facing judgment for being a Christian and now being a, an anarchist, you know, not willing to offer the pinch of incense. It says, on the account of Polycarp's martyrdom, it has the saint making his appeal to the Roman magistrate who had offered to spare the elderly saint if he would just place a pinch of incense into the brazen burning statue of Caesar. What was Polycarp's reply? 80 and six years have I served Christ. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And to that, they lit the torches. And that's Polycarp's testimony. Unwilling all the way to the end, light the fire. And so my point being, as we look at these examples, realizing, guys, this is the faith that's been passed down to us, Right? blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. Like this is the faith we inherit. We've lived in uh, a season of great comfort and grace, you know, where we have great freedom. There's a lot of people, a lot of other places in the world that don't have this freedom. The question is, what are we doing with it? Because there is a time coming where we're not going to have the same freedom. I don't know how quickly that's going to be. But the question is, what do we do with the time that we have? And I want to say something here because there's some people here today like, geez, I really want to be a polycarp. I do. When the moment comes, I want to be a polycarp. I want to be someone that just says, like, I'm not going to offer it to Caesar. But I know, because we've all been there in moments where, like, I'm, going to, I'm not going to offer the pinch of incense to Caesar. And then you're like, I think I offered the pinch of incense to Caesar. And you're sitting here today, and you're like, but what does that mean about me? 
What does that mean for me when I felt like, man, I didn't want to, and I wanted to testify about Jesus, and I wanted to say that's not okay, and I wanted to say that joke is not all right, and I wanted to not go along with that. I wanted to go a different way, and I didn't. I want to say this. There's one in Jesus' company that you'd have good company with. Remember the story about Peter? And Jesus looked at him as he was getting ready to head to the cross, and he told him, hey, Pete, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. The point is that Jesus looked right at Peter and said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Three times before the night's out. Anytime Jesus warns you about something, you should pay attention. Your answer shouldn't be, no, I'm not. You're like, Peter must have been a teenager. Um, But when you find yourself arguing, like, no, I'm not. But here's what I want you to notice. Jesus knew that his faith would fail in that moment, that he was going to deny Jesus. But I want you to notice something. Even knowing that, that in this moment, this, this initial test, I have prayed for you when you have what? Returned. There's an invitation to Peter knowing you're going to fail, not once, not twice, but what? Three times. And guess what? I'm not done with you. And I know that it's hard and I've prayed for you. But here's the thing, Peter. When you come back, strengthen your brother. And here's the point, though. Peter doesn't continue to live a lifestyle of denial. He has his moment. and It all kind of falls apart. Jesus finds him after. And three times, notice, do you love me? Right? He gives Peter an opportunity to affirm his love. But here's the other cool thing. Peter grew into a radical. It wouldn't be but a couple of weeks later that he would stand in front of the same people in the Sanhedrin. Now what? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. This Jesus whom you crucified, let me tell you about him. And he didn't have any trouble talking about Jesus. And here's the cool thing. That carried all the way to the end. There in front of Nero, unwilling to offer the pinch of incense, if you will. They said, we're going to crucify you. And his response, please crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my savior. Peter finished like a what? A radical. My point is, some of you guys, maybe you're new in the faith. Maybe you struggle with your faith. Maybe you're like, man, I'm just, I feel like I've done the, the rooster three times kind of thing but it doesn't have to stay the end of your story. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become those people that go out this week and say, let me tell you about Jesus. And when it really matters, when the moment, when we draw the line in the sand, we'll be ready to say, no, I'm not offering that pinch of incense to Caesar. Why? Because Jesus is my Lord. Why? How far did Jesus go for you? To what lengths was he publicly willing to say, this is my love for you? There wasn't a private salvation. It was a public salvation. By his stripes, we are healed. He was crucified. All of that publicly for us. He bore our shame, our guilt. So the question is, will I stand for him? Now, we're going to close with communion. And today, as you're thinking about that, this is a public way 
for us to identify. We don't have enough public moments where we just get to feel like I, it's like we have anniversaries where I get to be like, I love this person. I get to acknowledge that. My hope is every Sunday, but more than every Sunday, you have ways in which you can remind yourself. I'm not offering a pinch of incense to Caesar. Caesar isn't Lord. Who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. This today is a way for us, worship team's coming on up here, is a way for us to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But I don't want it just to say because you're in church this week. I want you to begin to really think about what does Jesus being Lord look like in my life, at school, at work, in my marriage. We really need to start thinking about him being Lord and King. And all those little areas where you feel like you're being asked to show loyalty to something else, we gotta start drawing a line in the sand and being like, no, Jesus is Lord.